um, it wasn't in Nepal that he became a monk. I think what's important, I think what makes a writer, in my opinion, is, is you can be grand and lofty and have your sentences grammatically correct and really, you know, study the technical side and know how to tell a good story and all that. That's great. That's an important ingredient. But I think what makes a good writer is if you're able to get to the truth and get to the heart of the, of the matter. And I, I hope I was able to do that and that I am able to do that. I'm, I'm always looking for the truth. So. Welcome to Credit in the Straight World. I'm your host, Kayala, also known as Nervous Breakdowns. I have a few other aliases too, but I'm not going to get into that right now. We're uh, scaling it back a little bit out of getting out of behind the service counter, which we talked about coffee and the trials and the turbulations of that world. And now we're on the other side of the counter but we are behind the desk of writing a book. So we're dealing with an author. Her name is Mudra Love. She wrote a semi, well, I guess it is a memoir, but it's based on um, Buddhism to uh, Buddhism because of um, her relationship with her father um, and how it applies to her life at this time that she writes about. And it's called Monk's Daughter. I had helped uh, design the book cover actually after we finished her interview, and which we did remotely. So technically, I've never met her, but I I feel like I know her. Maybe because I read, I'm still reading the book, which is fantastic. But something to keep in mind: this it was not not published. She was unpublished when I did the interview, and I followed up for 20 minutes that I will post on the second part of this interview later on. But very much like I did with Nero when he finished his film, I got an interview before and a little bit of interview after. And I think it's a, it, it provides interesting context and you get to understand the person's feeling before and after. But um, we were supposed to do, we didn't do the interview in person. Also, we were in Hawaii when we did it, though we didn't actually meet. I was back home in Hawaii. We didn't do it in person because not because of COVID, but because Major was nine, nine months pregnant and she was about to pop. So if you know me, uh, you know that would have happened on my podcast in person uh, that someone would have given birth. So I'm glad she had um, had it on her shoulders not <laughs> to meet up with me. But it worked out great um, remotely. And in the process, I made a really good friend and I can't wait to meet her in person and her new baby Zoe. But without further ado, this is my interview with Mudra, who is an author, a model, uh, amongst other things. But you'll find out now when you listen. Anyway, how are you? I'm doing well, yeah, considering I'm ready to pop any minute. <laughs> um, not that you're supposed not that you're supposed to look a certain way when you're nine months pregnant, but um, you look great for someone nine months pregnant. 
I couldn't. It's, it's definitely a, well, you know, it's, you, you were, we're dodging um, pregnancy brain. Yes. Is that what it's called? So we're, I don't know if we're dodging it or we're going to be dealing with it. It's totally fine because I can just name the episode pregnancy brain. You know, <laughs> that's just, it just doesn't another topic. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real thing. You know, I'll be saying something and then mid sentence, I'll forget what I was even talking about. And it just like, I don't know, scattered into the universe and popped. So that's okay. I do that. And I'm not even pregnant. So at least you have an, <laughs> you have an excuse. Yeah. At the same time, this whole pregnancy thing is just no excuse. This is I your first care. pregnancy, obviously. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that at some point. I'm sure pregnancy lies somewhere within all, um, my notes, but, um, <laughs> First of all, like, how do you say your name correctly? Mudra. Mudra. Yes. Um, what's the origins of that name? Oh, it, it has um, a deep and long <laughs> meaning, but uh, the short version of it is that Mudra, do you want to hear my dad's version or do you want to hear like the, the book version? <laughs> you can do both. You can paraphrase oh. the one that you feel least comfortable with though okay. if that makes you so, my dad's version is embarrassing but it is what it is oh it that's means... the better one yeah <laughs> yeah so um yeah it means attitude of a goddess oh my god yeah so I don't really just like go out telling people <laughs> like oh, yeah attitude of a goddess um so that's yeah that's my dad's version but mudra is um they're actually like symbolic hand gestures so you see the buddha like doing the prayer and then like the meditation and dispelling fear. So they're like symbolic hand and body gestures. And you'll see it also in like Hindu art, Buddhist art, dance. So that's kind of the more technical version. It's a particular hand gesture or it's the, I, the, the series of hand gestures that fall within Buddhism? It's a series and there's 108. Oh my God, it's amazing. Yeah. That's dad's version or is that? No, that's the like technical version. Technical. My dad's version is, you know, attitude of a goddess. Because they're really, they are different attitudes and you can dance with them like in, in Hindu art and music and folklore. Like, you know, you, you do dancing when they're doing different like body hand positions. And if you've taken yoga, you've done mudras. You know, um, I, I, I can't think of anything off my, the top of my mind. I definitely see that. Like, I'm, I have a friend who... Um, I have a very white girlfriend friend in uh, New York. I used to know her in San Francisco, but she was enamored with um, Indian dancing. But I think it was, I, I know what she gets at with the, but I think it's the the mudra part that like within the these gestures, there's a lot of things happening. If you don't understand it, it's very, um, you know, something is going on, even if you don't know what it's saying. Mm-hmm. Like who is the same way? Like it's very, it's all symbolism. It's awesome symbolism yeah but very yeah. graceful mm-hmm. um where are you from originally originally from Kathmandu, nepal how did how did that work out <laughs> <laughs> how on earth did you get here all the way to i know i'm so far away from home um i thought i was far in new york to get to hawaii but you totally outdo me on this one yeah, definitely. Um, well, you know, my mom's side, we're all Nepalese. And um, my dad is Halle, white guy, actually from New York. And nice. 
he went to Nepal to study Buddhism. And then uh, later he became a monk. But um, it wasn't in Nepal that he became a monk, but he started his journey there. What year was that, Rowan? It must have been in the set. Well, basically, he yeah, he went in like the six late sixties, early seventies, and it was when um, Eastern religion was coming to the West, and you know there was like it was the hippie movement and all of that. Mm-hmm. My dad got involved with that with Hayden Ashbury, and you know exploring consciousness in different ways, and so um, he did that for a little while, but then he wanted to have a more serious practice, so that's when he decided to go to Nepal and um, kind of practice more, you know, take his practice a little bit deeper and meditate. And he met with like different gurus and lamas and um, he stayed in Nepal for one year. And then he, when his visa expired, he snuck off to India and then he was in India for another year meditating in a cave And then the authorities found him and found out that he had no exit paperwork from Nepal and no paperwork at all to be in India. So they kicked him out. (laughs) And then he went back to the U.S. And lucky for him, as I was saying, it was Eastern religion and philosophy was coming to the West at that time. So there was a lot of different masters and gurus coming and bringing Buddhism to the West. So it was around that time that he met a Manchurian Chan master. And then he stayed with him for 10 years and became a fully ordained monk at his monastery in Northern California. And then where in the, when did you come to the picture? When did he? (laughs) So he was a monk for 10 years and then he's decided he kind of wanted to, his time doing that was kind of, you know, that chapter was closing. So he decided to go back to Nepal he gave up his robes, went back to Nepal, and then met my mom and started a family and had me and my sister. And uh, then I lived in Nepal for about six years and then I moved to the U.S. and grew up in California and then moved to Hawaii about five years ago. What part of California were you guys in? Or were you in? Yeah, Santa Monica. Santa Monica? Yeah. Um, I was at, just out there. I didn't... I. I left Hawaii to go to the Bay Area for art school. So Mm -hmm. I'm like part Bay Area. But then um, working on my film, I had to go to LA. And then I didn't understand until my friends that lived there were like, had to do all these interviews. And it was like, they're like, oh, where are we going now? I'm like, well, they said they're here. And they're like, Santa Monica. I was like, I don't know. That's just Pasadena. I was like, I don't. It was like boroughs of New York. When someone says Queens or Brooklyn, but in my mind, I always thought like, oh, it's just LA, isn't it? Isn't it all just the same? And it's, it's so different. Even the, um, the, like one interview I did <clears throat> for my film, was, it was Santa Monica, but the implication was that because I was interviewing someone that I'd met that was in bands that they thought like, oh, because she's in Santa Monica, this says this about them. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like almost like they're, um, their social background or like their their economic status and in the end it was funny because the the person was simply going to college and staying on campus uh-huh. which explained everything but everyone was jumping to these mysterious conclusions as to why this person that was in a band in san francisco is now living in santa monica and at the same time a good friend of mine's was raising a family in santa monica so uh-huh. it's like 
yeah, I guess, I guess it says it speaks for, I was like, okay, this is what Santa Monica is, right? Yeah. I mean, it really does carry that. And I really love how you compared LA to the boroughs in New York because it's really true. It, there's, there's just pockets and they're all so different. And, you know, sometimes, you know, people intermingle, but for the most part, you kind of do stay in your bubble. So for me, it was Santa Monica, Venice Beach, and then Hollywood, partying in Hollywood for a little while. So those are my three bubbles. And I didn't really venture out, maybe downtown LA a little bit. And of course, like Beverly Center and Beverly Hills is right there too. But yeah, you kind of stick within your circle, which might be true for Hawaii too. It is. I, I just had a, um, <laughs> I was, I got, for me, I always, I live in Wahua which is considered the boonies, but like, I don't, but I realized that I live in Queens. So like when I first got to New York and moved to Queens, everyone was like, oh, hang on. And like, you live in Queens. It was like, oh my God, Queens is the Waiho of New York. <laughs> it was like, it all makes sense now. And yeah. yesterday I was going to, I was, I found another um, local person to um, interview too, because he's a musician working mm-hmm. at Guitar Center. But I said, yeah, you can, come to Oahu was like oh that's far I was like I'm sorry you live in Kailua so you live far how dare you tell me but like Oahu has that association because we're we're like a pineapple town you know it does it does and it's like 20 minutes from where where we were standing like it's a 20 minute drive from here so I don't think it's that far um and what was the connection to Hawaii or how did you get from Uh, my husband so um I met him when we were in school and I mean I grew up in Santa Monica but I went to school in Northern California so um San Francisco State actually oh okay um so we were both in school and he was is from Hawaii and basically I pretty much grew up in Santa Monica but I also had went to high school on in Maui for a little bit and my dad, you know, had a Hawaii connection. And so Hawaii has kind of always been a part of my life growing up. We'd vacation here. And so when I met my husband, it was just like so natural and easy. And, you know, we both graduated from college and started our careers in the Bay Area, but kind of felt a little bit isolated and and lonely. And I don't know, everybody was just so career driven, which is a good thing, but we wanted more of a lifestyle balance. So in and- in San Francisco? Was yeah, that like, yeah, we were living in Palo Alto and everybody was really, in, you know, there's like a tech, all the techies and yeah. I don't know. I mean, it, they're not as driven as New York, of course. That's like, yeah, that's that's on, that's definitely on um, a much higher scale. But Palo Alto is another thing. I, 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 I hope I can insert it into the film somehow because like, I don't think people understand what exactly a Palo Alto is, which is funny because the girl that lives in Santa Monica um, was in the Spam the Donnas, but they're a, Santa, they're a Palo Alto band. So when I talked to her about going back to Palo Alto, she was saying kind of what you're saying too, that it just kind of became washed. So where she started a, a band in her garage was no longer that place. It's probably around the same era, you know, by the time she moved out of the barrier. And that, that was like her, um, it, that's part of the diaspora to go to LA to fl- flee the the Bay Area because it was that, what you're talking about. 
Mm-hmm. Techies coming in, and then it just became. I don't. I mean, I actually don't know much about. I wasn't there for that long, but it was just so dry. And you go to coffee shops, and everyone's just talking about their apps. And I don't know. It just wasn't something that. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> yeah, you probably. That's probably when I. That's just. That's when I left to go to New York. Is like right when that took over. But I didn't actually witness it. So now it just seems like a ghost. Mm-hmm. like tech, a ghost tech world in a way where it's yeah, like, there's no personality there whatsoever no personality when my dad came to visit he's like what's this whole silicon valley this hype like <laughs> you just go down the street and it's just like you're just like long stretches of just i don't know the street and then like there's just no personality or charm and i, I don't know it's just really bland and blah that's so, so funny it's like the polar opposite of what i when I went to school, I felt like I grew up there, like my twenties. So it was uh-huh. like there was nothing but interesting and con- like and so much content. And now it's like uh, it's eliminated. But that's sort of like what I want for my film. Like I'm trying to like show the what happened, like what's been erased, because I was able to capture it. I was like running my video camera when my band would play on the street, and it captured this like it's the juxtaposition of like the tech culture and the things that we were doing. It's like, you wouldn't believe that it was the same place, which is so unique to the Bay area because New York is like always going through these art is dead or New York is dead, but then it's never been so bad that it's been like just completely wiped out. You know, it's sad, it, <clears throat> but it's funny. Cause you're, um, I never thought that, <clears throat> Hawaii, like when I, my first guitar player, like we met at a record store in Hawaii and then we moved, we, he went to USF and then I went to the Academy of Art and it always seemed like, this is a long time ago, but we were fleeing Hawaii to find stuff, you know, rock and roll and stuff to do, which we found, but it sounds like you found more to do. It was by this time you flee, you flee to, for that, you know, to want something more, you and your husband or boyfriend at the time and Hawaii was had more content. Yeah. I don't know if it was content for me, but it was, I just wanted more of, well, yeah, maybe, but yeah, just nature and lifestyle. And I love being by the ocean and Bay area, the, the ocean there just wasn't cutting it for me. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's half of an ocean. There is water. Yeah. Yeah, they don't have a beach lifestyle there. And obviously growing up in Santa Monica and ben- Venice Beach, that's mm. a big part of my um, upbringing and who I am. So did you, f- um, so you guys moved together? You weren't, you guys didn't marry yet, did you? Or? No, um, no, we didn't. We've been together. Actually, this year is a big year for us because we made 10 years and we also made a baby. Congratulations on both of those things. Thank you. But uh, we didn't marry right away. I was, I've, I've always taken my time with things. I didn't, I've never wanted to um, follow like the traditional norm of, okay, we're, we're together now. So let's get married and now let's have a baby and now let's get a house. And I, I mean, I do, I have followed that order, but not in the urgency that I think a lot of people have. Just because I, I just like natural, organic unfoldings, and we were just happy and didn't really feel like a need to rush into anything. So what year did you, so five, five, five years ago about? Yeah, we moved here about five years ago, and 
we got married about uh we got married in 2016 we moved here in 2014 so it's been six years so that would be around the time and i um so you ended up i don't know what you call this you've created um blog sounds too limiting you created some sort of like hub. The timeline of my um writing and my yeah yeah like how uh, i found you was like it's like a it's many things going on and they seem to have ultimately started in hawaii if i'm correct yeah um i would say that i got ser- so i would say i got serious about pursuing my writing mainly that's my form of art about yeah about six years ago you're right when we, when i moved to hawaii that was actually right when i started writing my book which i'm just finishing now and it's it's crazy that it's six years later but um that was just my process when you were starting were you getting into writing or did you start with a book as you like started I, i'm like an all i'm like a I'm, sometimes my naivety um, <laughs> kind of gets me um, to do things that, you know, someone with a little bit more knowledge would take pause. But yeah, I started with writing a book and I've been journaling for, you know, for a long time, writing diaries as most young girls do. But um, I, I just, I had an idea and I wanted to follow it and I just dove head first and I didn't know anything about it. So hence maybe why it's taken a long time, but you know, as, as a creator, you kind of have its ebb and flows and I wasn't, I wasn't, I was completely new to the process and I didn't really know what I was doing. And I had an idea, but that idea changed multiple times and um, it's, it's been a long road, but I would say actually the last two years is when I really buckled down and knew what I was doing and actually wrote the book because I wrote two books. The first one I pretty much discarded. And then this next one that I wrote, which is, you know, loosely based on the first one. um, That's when I got serious and I buckled down and I wrote it and it took about two years. And so I'm going to release it next year. Do you think that um, I was reading about this on your, what you, you had posted and I, it was very similar what happened with my film where like, if I didn't, if it didn't fail the first round or when I thought it was like, it was solved and then I found it and then it felt like complete failure, I would have a worse, I wouldn't have as good of a film. Would you agree oh, that was it? Totally, 100%. The, you know, the first round, the first like finished product, what I thought was finished was it was very dry. It was very limiting. I mean, basically what I wanted to share was my dad's wisdom on the Buddha's teachings. And I did that, but it was very like didactic. And it was just, it was like, you cannot, you, as a reader, it's like reading the Wikipedia or something on mm. Buddhism. It was not interesting. And um, I actually had an editor, editor friend that I gave it to, and she took a look at it and she says, you know what? you know, some of the core philosophies and concepts and ideas that you explore are great. I love what your dad has to say, but you really need to make this into your own and make it into your own story. So what I ended up doing was writing a personal memoir about my experience 
on Buddhism with the help of my father helping me along that path. So it's a story and, you know, that's how, that's how people learn. And that's it's so much more entertaining that way. And I didn't know much about the art of storytelling and I didn't grow up reading fiction, which would have really helped, but I did grow up reading a lot of memoir and autobiography. So that's kind of what my book became. What do you think that reading fiction would have helped you? What do you mean by that? Uh, just simple storytelling, descriptive, you know, describing the characters and getting in touch with the senses and setting the scenes, you know, in the beginning of every chapter, most fiction, you know, it sets the scene or the tone or the mood of the character. So I think it would have helped with all of that. What was, <clears throat> excuse me, what, when did you, what was the point? Was it when you, your, your editor's comments? Well, what, what yeah. told you that the first version was the, not the real, like when you knew it was like, My editor's you felt like this comments. was a, there was comments. Like, oh. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm kind of myself, like, I don't mind reading Wikipedia and like, I kind of have that like journalistic research kind of brain where I like information and I like learning facts and it was just like, it was okay for me. But um, I really took my editor's comments to heart and I knew that I could create something much more engaging if I followed her advice. So I decided to do that. So version two is the final, is yeah, it's final. It's done. I'm like, I'm not changing it because you don't know how many times I've, it's gone through a copy edit. My, the, the same editor that, ha, you know, advised me to change it. It went through her for a copy edit, went through my husband. He read through the whole thing. And then I've also proofread it probably about a million times now. So, and it's set in stone, you know, you're done when you're just like, there's nothing more I want to add. There's nothing more I want to take out. The only changes I'm making are like small word choices or it's grammar or something like that. So it's done. I'm ready to close that chapter and move on. That's, I mean, I'm like right behind you. I can, I can oh, yeah. taste it, but I'm not, I'm almost, I'm, I would say I'm in post-production, but. Yeah. I'm you got to make sure you're not getting nitpicky because there's, for me, perfectionism is my defense and it's, it's perfectionism is my insecurity. And so when I start nitpicking at things, it's because I'm not, you know, a hundred percent confident about what I'm doing. So you got to recognize when something is just, is done and it's just your perfectionism and your insecurities getting in the way. I the element of insecurity is always there for me. But my my friend Nero, who's a filmmaker, he was helping me. And I I'm his 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 episode is up next, I think, in a couple few weeks. But in the interview, he I was asking him about the stuff working on my film. And he he was like, in his very uh fatherly tone, he was like, you know, it's like I think you have a lot. You think it's it's time to you really need to pump, you need to stop. And like, I think you're done. And yeah. No, but, but, but then there's this other person that can, and I was like, but I know what you're saying. Cause I, he's the, I need a father figure in my, my creation process that way. Otherwise yeah. I'm this like a flailing child creator. Yeah. So you've, so you've kind of dealt with the, you're kind of dealt with the same thing. With I'm in the, um, um, maybe it's, it could be nitpicking. I'm in the, I'm not sure I have enough, but I have a couple 
there was like one person that keeps not following up on the interview and he he was in a barrier band he lives in new york and i feel like i need him to it would just round it out yeah but if he keeps letting me down i have to like let it go because i think i'm just gonna send one more email and if i can't get him when i get back to new york then then it's god's will that this is i have all the content i need which i do have a lot so i don't think i'm being a picky that's just the one thing because i he agreed i showed him like sort of like my an edit not even a full edit of the film but just like a trailer and he liked what i was talking about he was like yeah i see it this way and he was like it'd be really good because the whole thing is about the <clears throat> how everyone from that scene or that time all disbanded it's a diaspora no one hardly anyone lives in the bay area anymore some of us flee to la santa monica and some people went to new york but i don't have anybody from that fled to new york except for this one drummer so I just feel like he would really round it out. Um, nice. I'm not holding on to it in this unhealthy way. It's just, just from an um, aesthetic thing yeah, is what I it see. is. That's but good. I, that you recognize the difference, you know, because um, non-attachment is obviously a very important principle in Buddhism. And it's good that it doesn't seem like that's what's happening to you. No, because that because that would that kind of thinking is from the first draft. That's from the failure draft, and I'm, okay, I so learned I learned a hard <laughs> lesson yeah. on the the first draft, and it wasn't because of an editor. It was like I tried to crowdfund, and that was horrible. Um, so, <laughs> oh my god, I'm so hot. I know. Are you turning it? Are you turning down the temperature or up the temperature? No, I'm just increasing the fan. Um, I am so hot, but I don't want to mess up my microphone. There's like a fan sitting next to me. So I'm like <laughs> sweating <laughs> like crazy. Um, that leads me to two things. Maybe they're, they could be this, the same thing, but um, the idea of um, um, self-publishing mm-hmm. and Buddhism um, I think we should, which one should we start with first? Or I could easily tie both into each other, I think. Let's start with self-publishing since we just went from like our, our process. Um, what are your thoughts on self-publishing? Because that's what you're doing for your book. I'm doing it for my film, but it, I read what you said about it on your site. Yeah. But can you talk about that for a bit? Yeah. Um, I think self-publishing is great because you have full creative control over every aspect of your art making. So in regard to a book, you have full control of exact, of all the content, exactly what's written. Um, you know, no one else is changing the words or the sentences or even the overall theme or arc of what you're trying to say. There's no input from anyone else. It's you purely. And then even, and on an artistic level, working on the cover right now with a friend and I get, we get to design the cover. I get to have exactly the image I want, the typeface, the binding, everything. So you have 100% creative control, which is the most appealing to me. Um, if you have a publisher take it on, you know, they have a whole team and they do all the editing, which is great, but there's also things that they might change or they might change your message, which would be the worst thing, I think. 
um, in your writing or, um, they, you know, they do the cover, they do everything. So creative control is one of them. That's like super important to me. And I just really like the DIY process. You know, it, it just becomes so much more personal and it's exactly what you want. And then there's the legal issues too, which I don't fully understand, but basically in you don't have any rights to your material. You have the copyright, but they have, but the publisher has like the print license and they have full control over all the, I don't know, legal aspects and all of that. So I think that's why self-publishing is pretty neat. Those are the two big things. Um, Yeah. Those are the two off the top of my head. I'm sure there's a lot more. Um, and it's interesting because it's, it's ex- the the publisher is what the producer is in music and where a label is I would say and then in a film it's the producer which yeah. um, it's I think the whole thing is the control of the content yeah like this the part that's really um, should be most important I don't know it's just something that consider um mm-hmm. I never thought of it from a um like from a book process although <clears throat> I do know like yeah I there is one memoir I always wanted to read from this bass player and she she just never finishes it but she has a publishing deal and I can't figure out if it's her or her publishing deal because mm-hmm. it's never gotten done so the, <laughs> it know. sounds like it no because you're doing something that took you like five five years mm-hmm. right which seems like a long time this person I was like oh it's happening because she has a publishing deal um and she talks about it on Instagram and she tells these great stories in the Instagram but mm-hmm. there is this it feels almost like um I don't know if it's because of she has she was an addict in her past or she is you know she's a recovering addict but it in the posts about the, with the stories and her history and it's like it's like there's already a book with all these posts but the book yeah. never gets done so it's like another i think great thing is like you're actually ahead when without a deal you know what I mean? Like, cause I always thought like, Oh, cool. She's, she succeeded. She got a deal on her memoir, but yeah. you finished your book without a deal. Oh know, yeah. Which yeah, takes discipline. Other, yeah. That's the other thing. Um, most people don't just, like I said, I just dive straight into things without knowing much about it. And sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's not, but in this case, you know, I, I went for it and I did it. Um, but most people, they don't just write books. They try to look for a book deal first and they submit what's called a book proposal. And um, maybe they'll have, they'll have a general idea. They'll have like the first few chapters written and then they send that out and see if a publisher wants to take them on. But for me, it was, it wasn't about that. It wasn't really about creating a product. It was about just sharing a message and uh, the process of it was more important to me than anything. And getting my dad's word out was more important to me than anything and my own story. So it didn't matter if I had a deal in hand or not, I was going to do it. And that's kind of what led me to finish it, I guess. Um, but that being said, I, I, I am connected with an agent 
Um, and well, you know, we're, we're going to see if I've submitted, she's inquired about my work and she's reading it now. So I'm in this pro in this, this period where it's where, you know, I, it could be self-published or they could choose to publish it. Um, I'll be in a weird place though, if they choose to publish it, because I don't mind them changing too much of the content. I don't think they will because it's already complete and I don't see them doing much to that, but the, with the cover, you know, it, it, it's my friend who did it and I really like it and they can just say no to that and do their own thing. So, um, and it's going to take a lot longer if I go with them. So I don't really know. It's all up in the air, but most likely I'll self-publish and they could take it in their hands later if they want to also. Did you originally, from the, from the get-go, did you think you were going to self-publish or did when you did something happen where you were like, I guess I'm going to self-publish this? Um, no, I, I didn't really, I wanted to keep publishing out of my mind as mm. much as possible. <clears throat> I read about it a little bit and I said, you know, I just need to focus up on the task at hand and I'll cross that bridge when I get there. So I, I really just want to pour myself 100% into the writing. And I want to have like, I just wanted to have a good product. So um, even though it wasn't really about the product, it became that. And, or I just wanted to give myself to the process, I would say. Um, but yeah, no, I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I kept that out of my mind as much as I could, because I think it could be it could deter a lot of people and your intention might change and your motivation might change. You might all of a sudden care more about being a published author and having fame and notoriety and, you know, fit and money and all that when, you know, maybe your motivation before that was to actually was to pursue your art, which is just kind of um, a higher and more noble goal for me. I mean, I didn't want to get call for people apparently. Yeah. Huh? It's a tough call. Like it's apparently it is a tough call for people to choose art over everything you just mentioned. Yeah. <clears throat> which is what you yeah. chose. I mean, it's, it's hard because we are in this material world and we have our egos and, you know, of course it's, it would be nice to be published and to have that, that um, carry that in your back pocket and to have the, financial financial gain and maybe the recognition and all that I think getting published is a great thing and but I also don't I also think self-publishing is okay too so um yeah I I don't know what I would do if they this agent wanted to take me on honestly at this point I'm like totally I don't know I have no idea but um I think I think you just have to be open but I also think that it's more important to keep your art front and center and just put your head down and do the work and see what happens. Did you have, when you were, while you're doing the, the writing process, did you have to, <clears throat> did you just keep going or did you like, was there any um, oh, studying yeah. along the way or that did you oh, totally. read, did you study authors? Did you have mentors or? Yeah, I, it was, uh, yeah, it was like, it was a process where, you know, I want to mainly focus on what I learned from my dad and his work, but I also needed to educate myself a little bit more because Buddhism is deep and vast and there's a lot to be said and it's not easy to understand. Um, so there was a lot of studying other authors 
And the tricky thing about that is, is, is that as you're writing and maybe as you're making your film, you know, you're still growing and developing, developing and you learn a lot. And so whatever you might've just shot maybe doesn't, isn't, doesn't really, um, you've learned, you, you've developed, so you've evolved and you're like, wait, actually this isn't that as good as it could be. So you have to go back and edit. So the danger with all that input and research and reading and whatever is that you, it can become an unfinished thing because you're, because it's growing with you and you have a better realization than what you had, than what you wrote down or what you shot. So that's with more, the more you learn, the more critical you are from the, from page <laughs> one, right? Oh, you know, totally. You're like, um, yeah. yeah. So I, I, there was a lot of that going on throughout the process and, um, and I guess it was this, the, I have to actually call it quits. I, I told myself the last year of my writing, I told myself, you know, I'm not reading anything on Buddhism. I'm not going to listen to anything. I'm not going, I had to cut it out because it was just, my book was never going to get done that way. So I actually made a pretty firm decision and I had to be comfortable with knowing that my knowledge is imperfect and I mean, it always will be, but mm. you know, I had to be comfortable with realizing, well, I know enough and I know it's good enough to be in the book. It's, you know, not the most, it's not as good as it could, it might be if I spent more time on it, but you kind of have to put a, a, you have to put a deadline on your insanity too, <laughs> if you want something finished. And so. Deadline on insanity. I have to. Mm -hmm. I have to write that on a post-it. <laughs> um, uh, with that said, I think this is like, that's a good segue into like the Buddhism itself. Um, and uh, I guess it's clear why you're Buddhist. I mean, did you, so you grew up Buddhist, right? Yeah. Would you say? Or was yeah. there, did, what, did you sort of um, grow into it or was it embedded from from the start yeah so i was i've been immersed in buddhism since i was born um you know buddhism is like the bedrock of like the social and cultural practices daily lifestyle in nepal and so it's and you know my dad being a former buddhist monk it was inevitable and inescapable it was just who he was and he embodied it fully from just the way he lived his life from the way we ate our meals praying and um you know to just every day his just watching him in his everyday actions so it was um it's been a part of my life since the day i was born but i would say it i took a special interest when i hit my own rock bottom and that was when i was 21 and partying in hollywood so that's actually where this, my story begins. And my book is called Monk's Daughter. And it's kind of, it's about the last 10 years of immersing myself fully into Buddhism um, and it being my choice because when I was young, it was just there and it was, I didn't think about it, but it was when I needed it the most that um, I pursued the path and I would say Buddhism saved my life and it's also the greatest gift my dad gave me. Did you, 
did you did you do and i guess uh, what, how would i put this did you i guess you did it pursue it independent for for your own reasons you sought it out you learned you, you know you you used it when you needed it the most yes. you came to your own self-realization did you <clears throat> did you go to your dad in that way or did you go to buddhism independently or did well, you just dust off books that you were in your library no. Both. Basically what happened is that, you know, I was partying in Hollywood. I hit my rock bottom and it was in that moment, my dad, um, I think he had a, he had a clue that something wasn't really right. And so it was at that moment that he suggested a silent seven day Buddhist retreat in Reedsport, Oregon. So I went on the retreat. I had many realizations and I, and the main one was that I got to get the hell out of Hollywood. So I decided to, um, leave Hollywood and move to the Bay area. And that was where a lot of the retreat participants resided. And there was a monastery there. And um, all of these people are part of the Sangha or the spiritual authentic, authentic friends that uh, were part of my dad's group when he was a monk. So um, it's all within the family in that sense. And um, so I started going to the monastery there every week and, uh, I was, you know, I was at Santa Monica Community College at the time. And, you know, I had thoughts about going to San Francisco State, but I wasn't sure it was Buddhism is what I needed at that time the most. So, yeah, I really just went to the monastery and fully, fully immersed myself in that practice and did that for a year. And you'd be surprised, maybe not, I did it for like six months and I just saw significant changes and then my life just started unfolding in really positive ways. And so um, the story is kind of about my my personal experience and what I did. And it's just to kind of show readers like how you can pursue the path as a lay person, someone that's not, I'm not gonna, I wasn't gonna go and join a monastery, although I had that thought. And so it kind of highlights the last 10 years of my life and how I've practiced with the help of my father guiding me along the way. What were the things that, what, uh, when you found clarity, I guess, um, what were some of the things that like, once you like got there that I would, that fell into you in a positive way? Like, um, well, I was, I was disciplined was a big one. Um, at my community college, you know, I was failing my classes, which was like really unlike me because I was a straight student growing up. So, going to the monastery and sitting in meditation kind of reestablished the discipline that I once had. And so that's when I decided, okay, I think I can do this college thing. So I, that's when I enrolled in San Francisco state. And then, you know, then I had straight A's, straight A's again. And um, so that was like one very, you know, strong area where I saw improvement. And then um, just not like being just not, it was so easy you know, I, it was hard for me being in, in in an environment that I didn't have the willpower to like resist because I partying and like that, I, I loved it. You know, I still love it. I'm still that person, but I had to fully remove myself and it's kind of dramatic, but that's just kind of the person I guess I am. Um, you know, and you know, those, I, I didn't want to say like temptation exists wherever you are. I could still have gone out drinking and 
Berkeley, that's where I was living. You know, there's lots of bars, it's a college town. And I did a few times and I had some setbacks for sure. But like, but just, but the Dharma at the time was more interesting to me. And so it kind of like captured my mind and held me there. And the meditation also. And having a Sangha, which if you're an AA or something like that would be like your sponsors and people like that. So it's really the community sitting in meditation hearing the Buddhist teachings and that just, that became more interesting to me than all the other <laughs> various activities. That's good. <laughs> That's a good thing. Um, what, the, I, this is something that always comes up is like, is, do you think Buddhism is a religion or is a philosophy? It's everything. It's, Buddhism is a philosophy, it's a way of life, it's a psychology, a science of the mind. Um, it's, did I say it's a religion? It's a religion. You can totally practice it as a religion. As You know, you can go in a monastery, take your vows, shave your head, um, you know, be fully dedicated to the Buddha's word in that way. Um, but that's why I love Buddhism, because it's so open and it's so flexible, and it doesn't have there's no requirement The I would say if you really want to call yourself a Buddhist, which we can get into that too, that's just a label. Um, I guess most basic Buddhists take the five precepts, like no killing, stealing, lying, sexual misconduct and abusing intoxicants. Those are like the five basic precepts that all Buddhists take. And other than that, you're free to do what you want. And it's, it's not so much based on morality and purity and right and wrong. It's more based on applying wisdom and skillful means and understanding. It's like psychology in the way that it's about understanding why people do the things that they do. I don't want to say sin because there's no concept of sin. There's more concept of original goodness is that we're all inherently good. So it's just about uncovering that and, and covering all the defilements that have kind of seeped in over time. So I really love the freedom of it. I love um, that there's no concept of a savior, that there's no concept of God and creator um, because we all have the Buddha nature and the opportunity to become enlightened. And we already have that within us. So it's like, I guess they would say God and us and God, we're not separate realities. We're just one. So it's just about discovering that. What about the people? I, I can, I can think of a, a handful of people, but I, I don't know if this is because of it's like a sect of Buddhism, but mm -hmm. you're talking about the five precepts, like what, but people that don't, that don't, I, the five that you already mentioned, I was like, this person declares <laughs> themselves Buddhism and they've only got one out of that five. What do you There's, think, you know, <laughs> what about the, the, when people define themselves as a Buddhist in this very, um, like, I don't know, surface level way. Even in that, I mean, I, I would say that's like the basic prerequisite, but they do say like, you know, if you can't do all five, then do four. It's all about doing your best. But then, I don't know if I call myself a Buddhist, but 
I mean, it, I mean, I don't do it. It's, maybe it's not about doing all five all the time because, you know, like I've, I kill ants and things like that sometimes. Um, even though lately I've been just trying to like, <laughs> trying to remove them nicely, but. I literally yeah. just wiped out a colony of ants. Like, cause I, in Wahiwa, there's, there's so many insects, but I left yeah. like one morsel of food in the sink and I was like, oh my God. And I immediately just, uh. Yeah. And Holocaust, which I did, I felt guilty after, but that's yeah. a, that's I don't hard. Know. Yeah, I can't like be the authority on Buddhism, but I, I do think that is like a, a main and basic requirement. Um, but they, or actually, I won't say requirement, but like guideline, like you should just try to do that. But there's different aspects of it that you can focus on too, if like. You know, if the five precepts is just like not doing it for you, like you could try like just focusing on the mindfulness aspect and meditation and kind of incorporating it. So I don't know. And like I was saying, like Buddhism is where, you know, it's, it's beyond label. Truth is beyond label. So they don't really believe in identification in that kind of way, although we do live in a conventional world where language is how we communicate. So you got to kind of think about that too. So I would tell people like, you know, I, I'm a Buddhist just to make the communication easier. Yeah. I have a, um, I, I'm not sure if I'm Buddhist. Like I joined, a, I don't know if it's always a religion or whatever. I just learned, I was like, I just detached myself from it when it started to feel um, in closing, or also that people kept saying to me, I don't know, it was like this, like, sometimes it felt like being handed a poison apple because it was more about um, if you take this, then you will have more. Hmm. If you just, if you, if you come to these meetings and that's when I was like, oh, this is becoming more like a religion than it is, you know, a philosophy or I'd go to these meetings and I was like, oh, I'm already aligned with that philosophy in Hawaiian culture. It's just like a, a repeat of that. So I'd be like, well, I totally understand this. Like your sutra is like how I was raised, like in this, like this sort of like philosophy. And then it started to feel like, and then it was like, oh, you should be part of the, there's a men's division meeting. And I was like, what is a men's, I don't understand why there's a men's division. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, okay, am I pulling away or am I understanding like Buddhism in a different way? Cause once <clears throat> if there's too many rules, I tend to like stray from it. But then in my mind, I'm like, I th- still think that I can take the philosophy home with me and sort of like resist this sort of um, mm-hmm. like. Um, it becomes more like a religious institution when that happens. Yeah. Rules in the men's division and all that. And that is one way Buddhism is practiced. You know, there's many, many, many ways. So I think it's all about seeing what works for you. And I'm kind of in the process right now of creating a religion of my own. And that doesn't mean that I'm creating something entirely new. Um, I don't think religion can be manufactured in that way. But what it means is that I have my main practice as a Buddhist, but I'm also 
open to different philosophies and ideas and concepts and borrowing from all the rich tradition and history that's already out there. So maybe looking at the gospels or native American history or even looser things like synchronicity or mm-hmm. mysticism and taking a bath and being in nature. I think it's all about finding what's sacred and getting in touch with that. So um, I don't think that we should limit ourselves. We should pour ourselves into our practice and be sincere into our main practice. But I think it's important to expand and not, not turn a blind eye to the truth. And my dad was a good example of that because, you know, he was a Buddhist, but on his altar, he had, like Ramana Maharshi and Amma and all these in Hindu saints. And, um, you know, he says Jesus is a Bodhisattva. And like, so it's like, we just shouldn't limit ourselves. Mm, yeah. Um, do you, wait, what was I about to say about that? Um, oh, <clears throat> so do you, who would, Obviously, your book has a strong Buddhist aspect, but it's not its not a Buddhist book, right? I mean, hmm. or how would you, you say? So I'm trying to figure out what your, who, your, who your audience is for your book. I would say no. it's, a, it's a memoir, and my audience would be for, it's a memoir of self-discovery. So it's for a younger audience, maybe. It's for who, who it's for like me when I was 22, when I was going through this whole experience, because I'm 32 now. So it actually spans the last 10 years, but it, it's basically for someone like me who it doesn't have to be that they're partying, but in some way, some form, they had a breakdown. Right. And so they're, it's kind of cliche in that way where it's like, Oh, you have your, you hit your rock bottom and you find God. So I guess it's, a version of that and I like to be original and but you know it, it's okay that's just what it is um it's just my story so I guess yeah my audience would be someone that's just looking to discover who they are and finding and and Buddhism is one way that can help them get understand who you are in a conventional self sense and also in an absolute sense because we're so much bigger than ourselves here as we mm-hmm. come to the form so it's about finding both and reconciling both and living the truth of both and integrating that I used to work um I worked so many jobs and one was I worked in a bookstore except I wasn't smart enough to work on the book side I was just the person that made coffee in the bookstore um I was t- treated t- it was so funny to see how the this um, independent it was very it's a very famous bookstore but I felt like we were treated like monkeys that made coffee and then they were like the bookstore side were like the intellects and they would be that. like can you make us a sandwich or why can't you give this us for free or here's a book recommendation you know it was like you know it was an interesting place to work and I I like I loved it but I always found like the more the actually more intellectual conversations where I had were on the cafe side, okay. you know, and the, the people working with aprons had a better, had better stories, but the, the tension between the two were funny, but um, yeah, uh, yeah I, I got fired from that job. I ran my mouth off too much. I but. would not be able to put up with that. I didn't even know that there was that kind of 
Yeah, I have a, a process. I would put it into, I was doing comic book drawings about it, mostly working in, cop, in the service industry, but the it's such an interesting, one of the many jobs that I had where it seemed like there was like, a, it just seemed very classist, even though everyone was basically working retailer service and no one was like, yeah. it was just funny how we were treated. And then like the cafe people weren't allowed to choose the music because <laughs> God forbid we might oh put God. something on that wasn't cat power or something. Yeah, I don't know. I personally don't even have many writer friends or you know I'm not even in that world so I don't know they might scoff and roll their eyes at me because I have no writing experience and here I am I wrote a book and I'm doing blogs and all these things but um I think what's important I think what makes a writer in my opinion is is you can be grand and lofty and have your sentences grammatically correct and really you know study the technical side and know how to tell a good story and all that. That's great. That's important ingredient. But I think what makes a good writer is if you're able to get to the truth and get to the heart of the, of the matter. And I, I hope I was able to do that and that I am able to do that. I'm, I'm always looking for the truth. So I think that hopefully some of that is captured in my book, but that's not for me to decide. Anyway. No, it's not, and you <laughs> yeah. can't worry about that, but that is a really good point though. There, I, that's like the point of that. Um, you don't need to have um, colleagues in the thing that you're doing in order to achieve it. I think that's like, it creates more insecurity to think that you yeah. have, to have writer friends or filmmaker friends or to do what you do. And you really, it really it doesn't. You just so, gotta love the medium, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. It, that's another um, hinder, hindrance is like outside of the creative process is thinking that you need to have, um, you have to run with a pack of people yeah. doing the same thing in order to do it. That's a, yeah. It could be really nice. I mean, I have a few writer friends and editor friends. It could be really nice and really helpful. Um, you know, if it, yeah, I mean, I, I can see the upside of it, but it's, it's not a requirement for by any means. <clears throat> and it, it will create a lot of, it could create a lot of insecurity and competition and, all that other negative stuff. So I don't know. If you, um, so I'm for me, and I'm thinking like, all right, so what I would do at the, what I would used to do at the cafe is um, I'd venture off to the other side mm -hmm. and actually look for books, believe it or not, because us <laughs> monkeys that make coffee can actually read. Where would I, where, where would you, if I'm going through the bookstore on my lunch break and I'm going to buy your book, yeah. What shelf would I find? Where would I find? What shelf would I, I find your book I on? Be front and center on display. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's called an end cap. So you're going to be, it's you're going to be on the new releases rack, like new <laughs> exciting authors. But if it's not there, where um, if I walked around the bookstore and like went through everything, where would um, I find the like it would stock? Be, I guess it would be like memoir or Buddhism. See, I don't even know because that's like I haven't crossed that bridge yet. My bridge that I'm on right now is the doing the cover. <laughs> <laughs>